0: And it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting
1: it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested
0: in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis.
1: We can look at what's
2: happening in the blood and that can paint
1: a
3: fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right
1: on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show...
3: He said to me, Philippa, if I had known how much this would have meant, I would have pushed for these changes earlier. He went from never having gone to the movies since his accident to having the energy, the state of mind to want to go out.
1: Home modification for those living with a disability... How small changes can make a massive difference. And the Facebook pages linking those living with cancer to cancer survivors. That's today on Think Health. But first... It's
0: important to understand that about 99.9% of the DNA among
1: all the people on Earth is identical. This is Mark Barash. Mark works in the Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. So if you
0: compare any individuals, you, you'll see that basically 99.9% of our
1: DNA is the same. And these DNA help our bodies perform in the way they're meant to.
0: All our organs, all are the essentials. So the majority of DNA must stay the same in order for our organism to function properly.
1: But Mark's interest in the area of DNA goes much deeper than understanding bodily function. For more than eight years, Mark worked with the Israeli police as a forensic DNA expert. And during that time, he was involved in more than 800 criminal cases. Mark was looking for DNA, but he was also looking for DNA that felt outside of that 99.9%.
0: About uh, 0.1% is different. And the forensic scientists, they look for these differences.
1: And Mark is looking at these 0.1% features because those are what separates you from everyone else. What separates you from me.
0: Eye colour or skin colour. The pigmentation, the shape of our face uh, could be different because it doesn't really matter for the survival of the species uh, what is the shape of our nose, right? It <laughs> may change our mating preferences, but not really affect drastically at our survival.
1: And these 0.1% features would also point you out if you were involved in, say, a homicide.
0: Every person uh, sheds cells all the time. So when, when we touch this table, when we go around the house, uh, we shed cells so we can find cells in the dust, we can find cells on your, our clothes and we can find it everywhere. And the same for the crime scene, of course.
1: When we shed our cells, Mark says it's like you're leaving little splatters of your DNA along the path you walk. And yeah, that sounds pretty gross. But to Mark and his work, those splatters are massively helpful
0: then we can try and find the biological material and see if we can analyse this uh, DNA and compare eventually with a reference sample. Let's say uh, we found a knife okay, with some blood on it. We want to find who was holding this knife. So we maybe want to test the knife handle and see if there are any shedded epithelial cells on this uh, handle. Eventually, we can uh, compare a profile from this handle to a suspect and see if we can get a match with his or her uh, DNA profile.
1: And how would you do that? Uh, We specifically look at the
0: locations in DNA, which we call short tandem repeats, or SCRs.
1: Okay, so let me divulge into this science. A short tandem repeat is a sequence of nucleotides. Nucleotides are like the basic building blocks of DNA. And there are four of these, A, C, G, T. So A, C, G, T are the different nucleotides. And everyone has those. But the number of times they will repeat, meaning the number of times they'll go A, C, G, T, A, C, G, T, A, C, G, T, will vary.
0: For example, it could be a sequence of A, C, G, T and then it could be repeated 5 times, 10 times or 20 times. In one person could be 10 another one could be 11 and another one could be 18.
1: Think of them as your own signature repeating DNA.
0: And then if we look at different locations in DNA and compare those we will see that we can actually find a unique or very rare profile, that's what we call DNA profile, which we can use to identify a person.
1: Meaning they can find hey, maybe you were the one holding that knife. Your DNA was found here and maybe you're involved in this homicide somehow. If you've watched enough CSI or Law & Order, you may already know all of this. But aside from matching a DNA sample to a murder weapon, Mark is part of a wave of people trying to take things to the next step and use DNA to develop more accurate methods of things like facial reconstruction, which is where you can draw up a digital map of a suspect's face or a victim's.
0: When we talk about face, Our face, if you think about it, it's a very complex trait, or many different complex traits, which means that they must be influenced by many, many different genes. By many, I mean hundreds and probably even thousands. This large number of genes make it, at this point, pretty much impossible to predict the facial appearance with, with very high accuracy.
1: But this hasn't stopped Mark from trying.
0: Again, that will be a long way. So probably some have heard about the uh, US-based company that sells a product which they are trying to promote as the way to predict uh, the visual appearance of a person from a DNA sample. That's a bit of a gimmick, actually, because, again, we still don't really know all the core genetics behind uh, the facial appearance. We can actually predict some of the... Pigmentation traits, we can predict uh, a biogeographic ancestry. So, for example, um, North Europeans uh, versus uh, East Asians, down to this kind of uh, resolution.
1: With the traits we can already determine about someone from their DNA, Mark is also thinking beyond the crime scene and looking to areas where a natural disaster has hit.
0: The problem with the Mars disasters are uh, the samples that are found there are usually so degraded so the DNA is so degraded that we could find only um just few pieces of biological tissue if we can use more advanced methods such as uh, forensic molecular phenotyping, we can again provide uh, additional clues of how this person looked like.
1: And I guess in the case of a disaster, to know whom that person might have been or who they were, as yeah. if to maybe notify someone later down the track.
0: Exactly, exactly. To so basically uh, draw a portrait of the person with some of these traits, and that could be really helpful for uh, the family to maybe recognize this person. By analyzing the uh, microbial DNA from his or we can potentially predict his diet or maybe if he commutes by a train or a private car. So all these little pieces of information could be really, really useful for investigation.
1: Mark Barash, postdoctoral research fellow in the Centre for Forensic Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. For those living with a disability, day-to-day tasks in the home you and I may take for granted can be much harder for others. Philippa Carnamola is working to change that. Philippa's research looks at rethinking the built environment and how home modifications, however simple or detailed, can completely change someone's experience of space and, two, their sense of community.
3: One of the people who were involved in my study for my PhD had had a spinal injury was an an adult, a tall man, so it was quite heavy. It was very, very difficult for him to get to the bathroom. He lived in a terrace house, very difficult to get to the bathroom. He was exhausted by the time that he'd kind of looked after himself. His wife wasn't able to carry him up the stairs. He hadn't realised how much home modifications were actually going to change his life. He said to me, Philippa, if I had known how much this would have meant, I would have pushed for these changes earlier because the bathroom was on the same level but it was further away from his bedroom and so he was able to get government-subsidised, we applied for government-subsidised home modifications so that the bathroom was attached to his bedroom on the ground level. And he said to me, the outcomes of that small change, that redesigning of the downstairs of their house, has totally taken the pressure off his wife and his daughters to help him get around the house and to look after himself in the morning. But not only that... He went from never having gone to the movies since his accident, which had been I think three years prior, to being able to having the energy and the state of mind to want to go out. So he'd go to the movies and he said for the first time in years he, he and his wife have been able to experience those social events and that's because of a change at home. So it's quite interesting how a change in the home can affect a change outside the home. In my PhD work I looked specifically at changes to the bathroom, including ramps, including handrails, so very much physical changes to the built environment. As well as those physical changes, what are the digital, what's the digital space in the built environment and how can that impact how people live and how people engage with space and how people are able to receive care or be more independent because kind of ha- they work kind of interdependently, I think.
1: And what are some of those digital aspects?
3: For people receiving very high levels of care might be the way that service is provided, so looking at care people or support people that are actually mobilised with devices so that we can know who's providing care at any point in time. Someone might know that you haven't opened the fridge in three days, for example, and that's out of character. Or it might be knowing that someone at 3 o'clock in the morning has gone into the bathroom and a support person being aware, not actually having to be in the bathroom with them, but knowing that they're in there and that uh, there might be sensitive pads on the floor that know if they fall, What about someone who, for example, might be living with early onset dementia? They're living totally independently in the sense they haven't got anyone living with them, but they're starting to experience some of the symptoms that we might expect. There's a lot of apps on phones that can help remind them on different stages of daily tasks so that they might, if they're having trouble remembering, that type of data monitoring where we know if someone hasn't opened the fridge or if they've been in the bathroom too long. It's all around that same tension of looking at design, built environment and human rights. How can we enable people to make the choices they want to do, to live the way they want to live and the way that we expect to live in full health? For a lot of older people, it's about not wanting to go into a residential institution, into an aged care facility. And it's quite interesting, the bathroom is where what can often tip people over into an aged care facility because... People will lose confidence in the bathroom. They'll feel unable to uh, safely wash themselves, for example, or to move around the bathroom. To get on and off the toilet, believe it or not, requires a lot of balance, kind of ability, and also strength in the legs and the knees. And the surfaces in a bathroom are very hard. So when you do fall, that's when injuries can happen. But also going from inside to outside. Think of how people live during the day. The clothesline tends to be out the back in the back garden, there might be a driveway or a carport out the front. Being able to wash and dry your clothes safely, those stairs, sorry, out the back of the house to the laundry became critical. And I found that in a lot of cases they tended to be a bit ramshackle and run down. So mm-hmm. that was one that they were, they were quite important, home modifications to do, to provide a safe, supported way to get out into the back garden.
1: You, were talking, you mentioned a government subsidy. What exactly is
3: this subsidy? Um, home modifications are subsidised under the government and the shifted a little bit. It comes under my age, depending on whether you're a younger person with a disability or whether you're an older person. There's kind of the NDIA for younger people with disability and then there's my aged care. But at the time of my PhD, every person who was included in my research actually was eligible for government-subsidised home modifications. One of the problems, though, that I saw certainly was that the wait list people were experiencing. And unfortunately, when someone is very are frail and older or when someone's living with a disability you really need those changes to be made as promptly as possible and the longer you delay it the more difficult it is or people's health further declines so that was one of the issues um, that I had and you will see if you do research a lot of people not enough but a lot of people are starting to do their own renovations to make their homes more accessible in anticipation that as they get older they want to be able to stay in their house Wow. Yeah, That's,
1: yeah. I, It makes sense but it's also kind of sad to think about
3: Well, this is part of the reason why people haven't done it in the past. I think of it a different way. I think of it in a really practical way. At any point, you or I could fall over and break our leg. At any point, I could um, become pregnant and have really high blood pressure and not be able to go upstairs, for example, or not be able to use a bath. So I need a safe way of, of, of washing myself. At no point is our health and our ability a given. So coming from that perspective, I think. Well, let's be practical. What could happen, and how can I use design to ensure that I can continue to live that I, the way that I, I want to live? I seem to have managed to find a way past seeing it as a terrifying or negative thing. Um, but your reaction is not uncommon, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, that's one of the reasons why a lot of people don't don't make the changes You're to be too their scared home. to do anything about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that could mean that it's a lot easier to to live independently, you know, if if health changes.
1: Philippa Carnamola, postdoctoral research fellow in the School of the Built Environment at the University of Technology, Sydney. This interview originally aired as part of a Think Sustainability episode on rethinking the built environment. You can find that by subscribing to Think Sustainability on your favourite podcast app. We all use social media to connect with our friends and family. But have you ever reached out to someone over Facebook you don't know who might be living with the same disorder or illness as you? A series of research undertaken by Babak Abedin from the University of Technology Sydney is looking at how those living with ovarian cancer are conversing with one another online. And Babak found that these people have formed their own niche online communities. What exactly are these communities?
2: These online digital communities could be private or public pages on Facebook. It can be a digital forum on an organization's website, or it can be public digital forums. This particular research that we did, we looked at a public Facebook page on uh, Ovarian Cancer Australia's Facebook page, and we had ovarian cancer patients, family members, carers, liking the page information was shared uh, on that page
1: were they sharing their stories as
2: well what happens is mostly the content is being posted by the particular organization and uh, people share it reuse it like it post comments and also the members of the page may share their own stories
1: what might that mean to the person who has ovarian cancer that they have the platform to do this
2: People and patients are in stage one, two, three, four, and you have your own medical, you know, uh, situation, circumstances, and difficulties. What we found was that as you see that there are other people with similar situation, circumstances, as you can exchange experience and sometimes exchange pain as well as needs that you may have that nobody else would understand it because other people may not be in your situation. So when you meet other people on this page that they have similar experience, and then you can exchange support, so when you exchange information, when you exchange experience, that significantly helps in boosting your psychological well-being. It helps, it gives people hope. Uh, It empowers them in various ways. Different groups of users have different needs. So this research looked at this particular group, but now we we're looking at other groups of users.
1: I guess to go to the second area of research, which you'd mentioned was older people and their interaction. Is it their interaction with these similar sorts of communities, or was it just more so the technology itself?
2: Mostly in reports and research, older people are defined as like people over 65 there are some platforms, online Facebook pages, online communities, digital forums dedicated to people over 65. So what
1: are these Facebook
2: pages exactly? Some of the popular ones are, one is called Over 60, uh, Start at 60. Their Facebook page, about two months ago, they had 470,000 members. In, like, uh, you
1: mean likes on the page?
2: Likes on the page. Over 60 Right. over60.com.au.
1: And what sort of things are on the page? Like, what are they posting ah, about?
2: A lot of content in regards to education, health, events, community activities. Some of the websites, they facilitate dating and finding companions, going out, you know, to going to the events, finding somebody to join you for particular events.
1: It's funny because I guess you wouldn't imagine there to be like a a Facebook page, so to speak, that would be like, 25 to 40, <laughs> or like 40 that's, that's to 60. Right. That's
2: right. And I would say it's because they have different needs. The type of health services, health information, educational information, this and that. That could be why pages like this be motivated to be created.
1: Were you also looking, I guess, the psychological benefits that these sorts of platforms might provide for older people?
2: Uh, now, the question of to what extent this helps or may impact their psychological well-being of that older users, that's something to be discussed and investigated. But as part of the brief study that we did, we found that these social applications can help older people in various ways. Firstly and most importantly, help them to connect to other people, connect to community members. It helps a lot with addressing sense of isolation, tackling loneliness, and also it helps with connecting with family members and it helps with your awareness of what's happening in the community but saying this the social technologies and the technology you know digital technologies is not just about positive impacts they are not for everybody they are not for every old senior and older people some older users they may actually not be able to physically be able to use the technology they might be at a stage that they need dedicated care, but for some people with some particular conditions, they may be under stress depression it 's better not to see what 's happening out there because people tend to share happy pictures, happy memories, and that doesn 't necessarily reflect the whole life of that particular person so for some so people with depression and living under partic- stress the psychological well-being may not improve if they see all the happy pictures and they feel that everybody else is happy. My life is, I'm not as happy. And that could actually negatively impact your psychological well-being. There needs to be more work in terms of, I would say, education and helping uh, older users to understand the technology, the implications, the ways that you need to protect yourself, as well as how you can use it to do new things and empower you in various ways.
1: What's the best form for this education to come in, do you think?
2: I, I am not an expert in aged care, uh, but there are a lot of services that's from different organizations, government and non-government organizations, being offered to older people. This type of education and digital literacy can come in different form by different organizations. Aged care service providers, they can offer training as part of their programs as well as government organisations. And these services don't have to necessarily be face-to-face. They can be online as well as face-to-face classes and training. But I think it's very important, in addition to a lot of content that's already out there, to provide tailored, customised programmes and training programmes for older groups of users.
1: Babak Abedin, Senior Lecturer in the School of Systems Management and Leadership at the University of Technology, Sydney that's all we have time for today on think health make sure you subscribe to think health on your favorite podcast app we're also available on itunes think health is a collaboration between university of technology sydney and 2 ser radio i'm jake morcom thanks for your company